Welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. How, how does your faith kind of play into it or does it play into it? What can be done about it? When I say the church, I'm talking about uh, evangelical white Christians and the black folk who attend their churches. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you have chosen to view this on YouTube or to listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon. As always, we invite your input, your uh, emails to tell us how we're doing. You can reach me at fredjeffsmith at gmail.com, fredjeffsmith at gmail.com, and let us know what we can do to improve this podcast experience for you. I'm very happy today to welcome an old friend of mine who is now a candidate for judge, uh, Veronica Vicki Jones. Vicki, welcome to the Thrive Podcast. Good morning. Welcome. How are you? Fine. I'm doing good. How are you? Fine. I know you pretty well, but for those who may not be familiar with your story, you're a native of Brenham, Texas, one of my favorite places because that's where Blue Bell ice cream comes from. Absolutely. How did you make the move from Brenham to Baton Rouge? Actually, I'm a native of Galveston, Texas. Okay. I grew up there, moved to Brenham when I was about 13, 14, and came here to go to law school. Okay. I was going to be here for a semester because I have n had no family here, no friends. I just came here to go to school. During my first semester, I met Reverend Smith. And how did I get to Shiloh? Because Shiloh was the only place that I knew how to get to from my apartment. <laughs> it was a straight shot up Nicholson, down government, and here. And so I started there, ended up being, you know, I went my three years in law school mm -hmm. and just stayed. I mean, I fell in love with Louisiana, fell in love with the people here. You know, Reverend Smith became, you know, they were my family. And so I've been here since then. Do you miss... Texas in any way? I know your mom is still in Texas. Do you miss Texas in any way, or are you very happy with your decision to come to Baton Rouge? Oh, no, I'm very happy. I mean, I'm happy with my decision uh, to be in Louisiana. You know, I actually live in Ascension Parish. Yes. People always think that I've, you know, lived in Baton Rouge, but I actually live in Prairieville and have lived there for the last 24 years. So, no, I, I miss my family in Texas, but I don't miss being in Texas. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, I've been here longer than I've been anywhere. So you're running for judge. You, you, you've you been a practicing attorney for many, many years. 31. Uh, 31 years. 31 years. And now you're ready to move into uh, the judgeship. You, you, you're ready to move to the other side. Uh, what prompted that decision? Um, you know, growing up, everybody wants to be the lawyer, the, you know, the judge, the doctor. In my younger years, you know, I wanted, to, I had aspirations of being a judge, but then I loved practicing law. So then I kind of lost that. And then last year, when I uh, found out that Judge Turner was going to actually retire, that's whose seat that I'm running for. Judge Alvin Turner had been on the bench, I think, for 30 years, and he retired in January. And then I just felt like there was a need for me to be on the bench, to share with people my experience, and then to let that experience work for our community. Mm-hmm. So you're running for Division E, as, as I'm looking at your information. Uh, 
23rd Judicial District, I'm assuming, is like the judicial district that Baton Rouge is in and that there's a division between uh, what civil law and criminal law. Is, is that the way it works there? Or, or, or will you receive all kinds of cases? Right, okay. What, yeah. what is Division E, I guess, is what I'm asking. Baton Rouge is actually the 19th JDC. Right. Uh, Ascension, Division E, is in the 23rd Judicial District. Right. Unlike other places, the 23rd has three parishes. It's Ascension, Assumption, and St. James Parishes. Mm -hmm. Division E is the minority subdivision that was carved out between all of those three parishes. And it was so that there would be a minority judge on the bench of the 23rd. Okay. So it's unique even in the 23rd because it covers more than one parish. Okay. The other divisions primarily cover a, you know, a single location. So the division has more to do with geography and not the kinds of cases that, you're, that, that, that would come to your bench. Correct. The Division E is based on geography. Okay. And unlike other places, like in Baton Rouge, they kind of slip between you have a separate family court. Right. Then you have, you know, judges that handle just criminal and judges that handle just civil. 23rd JDC, the judges handle everything. Okay. It's a general jurisdiction bench. Okay. So it goes anywhere from family court to civil court to criminal court. The judge hears everything. What do you expect to, to, to find being the most... Uh, different when you assume the position as judge as opposed to being an attorney uh, appealing your case? The judge actually has to listen more than they talk. As an attorney, you present your case and you basically, you know, have more of an opportunity to speak more often. As a judge, you're going to have to listen to both sides and then make a decision based on what you hear. Because, you know, there are, you did, there are judge you know, bench trials where a judge makes a decision, mm -hmm. but then you also have jury trials where mm -hmm. a jury makes a decision. So although the judge is not making the decision on a jury trial, they still have to have that same attentiveness because then that judge has to rule on objections and, you know, has to make sure that the law is being followed even though he ultimately won't make the decision. Mm -hmm. So that, that'll be different. Being on the other side, you know, and not making the arguments would be a little bit different. When you decided that law was going to be your career, uh, that this was going to be the, the, the direction that your life was going to go, and you chose to come here to go to school, Louisiana law is a little bit different from other places in the country. And I'm sure you were aware of that when you made that decision. Right. Did that in any way color your desire to stay here? Because passing the bar here is different from passing the bar in Texas or in Florida or in California, right. uh, where, where, where the law structure is different. Uh, my sister's a lawyer, uh, so uh, I know for sure she says she never wants to take a second bar exam again in her life. I understand that did, pain. Did that in any way shape your decision to stay here? Actually, when I came here, I knew that Louisiana law was different because we have what's called a Napoleonic law. Right. Other uh, states have common law. So I knew that that was a draw that, I, you know, because, you know, I was young, just getting out of college and, you know, ready to go to law school somewhere. And I thought, OK, well, if I go to Louisiana school, then I will learn both civil law and common law. And, you know, that will make me more marketable. But I had no idea that, you know, coming here. Louisiana law school is different, mm -hmm. and you know I went to LSU law school. Mm -hmm. So in law school, you take one exam at the end of the semester, and that is your grade. 
I was not aware of that before I came. As far as the bar exam, oh, I agree with Sonny wholeheartedly. I would never do it again in life. It was <laughs> Louisiana's bar is probably one of the hardest mm -hmm. because now it's changed. But when I took the bar, it was completely written. It was over a three-day period, mm -hmm. July 13th, 15th, and 17th, 1992. I will <laughs> never forget that. And it's completely written all day. Mm -hmm. And so that is how you passed, what, seven out of the nine. It was nine different exams. You mm -hmm. had to pass seven in order to, you know, be licensed. Okay. So that part was different. But in law school, I took both civil law and common law because I wasn't absolutely certain that I was going to stay in law in Louisiana when I uh, finished law school. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to have the option of going back to Texas or to a, a common law state. So I took both in law school. And they're not as different as people think. Louisiana has a few different things that other states don't have at all. Most things we have, we just it's just called something different than it is in other states. But it's the same principle, same concept. What are the primary issues that you see as being those that you will be confronted with as a judge, assuming that you're victorious? Uh, well, we're not tell, gonna, wait, tell, we're not going to assume that I'm going to be victorious. We are going to absolutely be victorious. We're claiming that victory today. Tell me what the issues are in the 23rd Judicial I think one of the biggest issues in the 23rd is the same that's everywhere. We have to get a grip on this juvenile justice system. I mean, we have so many kids that, you know, are in the system. One of the big issues in Louisiana is that once juveniles enter the system, we don't really have anywhere specialized to put them in a lot of areas. Because Ascension Parish had a juvenile detention center at one point, Assumption had a, you know, juvenile facility, but the uh, local government can't afford to run those those facilities. The state's requirements are so high that you, they can't afford it. So I think that we should have like regional juvenile, you know, justice system. I'm sorry, regional juvenile detention systems. So then that way, if you know, when kids do get in trouble, you're not taking them away from everywhere they know. Like in Ascension Parish or Assumption, if a child gets in trouble there and has to be uh, in the detention center it's gonna be hundreds of miles away from their home. They're either gonna go to a facility outside of New Orleans or they're gonna be housed in a facility in Mississippi. So whatever contact that child would have had, you know, with their family in hopes of rehabilitating them, you lose that because most of their family members aren't gonna be able to travel to Mississippi to see them. They're mm -hmm. not gonna be able to go to, you know, New Orleans. So then that child then becomes just a, a part of the system. Mm -hmm. You know, they you totally disconnect them from the family and put them in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. I think that needs to change. But we, I think we also need to look at juveniles prior to them being a part of the system. You know, we need to start, you know, offering them programs or keeping them busy before they get to that point. Uh, I think a large part of the problem is children don't have anything to do. And I truly believe that an idle mind is the devil's workshop. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you have kids going to school, which I don't advocate year-round school. I don't necessarily think that that would be bad. But, you know, you have to give them something to do. And I mm -hmm. think if you had more of the, you know, like work programs where you get a 15-year-old and have them working, making, you know, a little bit more than minimum wage, then that gives them an appreciation, you know, and lets them start gaining a work ethic. Well, then you kept them busy all day, which keeps them at least out of trouble. And you've also hopefully given them 
you know, the incentive to, okay, well, now I want to keep a job because I want my own money. And you're putting them in an, envir in an environment where they can see I can be more than I've ever thought of. Have them work, you know, for local businesses, you know, where they can learn about trades that are important to them. Have them work with lawyers. Have them work with doctors so that they realize that I can be that person too. And if you start that when they're younger, then maybe by the time they get to high school and, you know, where that trouble is out there a little bit more, that you've already given them some other options that they can exercise. Name the parishes again that make up the 23rd. Ascension, Assumption, and St. James. Okay. So Ascension Parish is primarily Gonzales. That's Gonzales the, and Donaldsonville are the biggest. Gonzales, Donaldsonville, and Sorrento. As I read the news, there seems to be a fentanyl problem that exists within Ascension Parish, within the Gonzales area, also uh -huh. in Livingston Parish. Are you familiar with those kinds of cases and uh, uh, what needs to be done to try to bring some remediation to that? I mean, there's a drug epidemic everywhere. I mean, it you know kind of changes over the years. It's one thing to say marijuana, right. you know, that, that, but, but it's, a, it's a whole other thing when you say fentanyl. But remember, uh -huh. we used to say crack. We yeah. used to say cocaine. Well, then now we're just moving into fentanyl, but it's the same thing. I mean, back when you had the crack epidemic, when everybody, you know, started, you know, using crack, well, now you have that same thing going, you know, going on now. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's going to be something that you, you know, just, it's the same, it's a woe of society. I mean, as long as, you know, those drugs are illegal, I think it's going to be there. I don't know that there's a lot that you can do to curb that ahead of time. But, I mean, it, I do believe that it should remain criminalized. Now, marijuana, I know that there's a trend that says, you know, we're going to decriminalize marijuana. I don't necessarily think that that's the worst thing in the world mm -hmm. because you have so many other problems. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason why I brought up fentanyl is because fentanyl tends to be, as I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, it tends to be more of a white problem uh, or white perpetrators than marijuana or cocaine or crack right uh so that suggests to me that those that will be appearing before your bench or the benches of the 23rd district are of a different hue than the majority of those who appear uh here in baton rouge is there a distinction is there a racial distinction in the way that the court system works in louisiana in your opinion there should not be but as far as the drug problem is there a difference not should not your opinion is there a difference in the way that uh, the judicial system works uh, i don't know that there's necessarily at the judicial system as a whole i think you have yes. to look at it but i think you have from to a look racial at, perspective yeah but you're going to have to look at individuals you can't just say the whole justice system looks at black people one way and looks at white people another way because you're going to have to take it a little bit deeper doesn't it start with law enforcement law enforcement is how you become how you get involved in the justice system right. correct but that's not a judicial issue i mean that's law enforcement and those two it's like two separate branches of government though they don't work together Do judges have any influence in in how law enforcement is uh directed oh no i i, I didn't say control but but 
can judges influence? Can judges suggest? Do judges ever sit down with chiefs of police and sheriffs and discuss the way that law enforcement is carried out? And I don't know. Has that, that been your experience? I don't know. That I've never had that kind of discussion, you know, or, or been aware of that discussion. I think what the discussion is, is where, where law enforcement is concerned. When you talk about law enforcement in the judicial system, you have to remember that what we see, what I would see from the bench is law enforcement officers coming in to present their cases. Mm -hmm. Well, my job is to make sure that those cases, you know, that they have acted in accordance with getting those cases to me. So I don't necessarily think that I will have any influence on how law, how law enforcement acts other than to say that, you know, I get to look at those warrants to make sure that warrants are valid. I get to look at, you know, probable cause for arrest to make sure that probable, you know, that probable cause was there. That's something that the judge does. So if there's going to be a corrective type measure, mm -hmm. then I need to make sure that I am looking at those things fairly. Because remember, it goes from law enforcement to the district attorney. Mm -hmm. District attorney decides who bills, who bills people, what to bill them with. But as far as when a warrant is signed, for instance, you take that warrant to a judge. Mm -hmm. Well, it's up to me to look at what that evidence is that's brought before me to determine whether I should even issue that warrant. Then even once the warrant is executed, say the DA decides to charge somebody and they bring that case to me. Well, then I get to look at whether that procedure was followed correctly. And I think if you have enough judges that I think that they're doing that. If you have them looking at making sure those procedures are followed, then that should curb and encourage police officers to do the, you know, to do things by the book. But that it's I don't have a direct impact. I can't go tell a police officer. No, I, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that, that you can direct police officers in their duties. But I can imagine that just by virtue of the fact that you are Judge Jones, that you have access to uh, law enforcement heads that Joe Citizen does not have. And you okay. can have conversations with those heads in ways that the rest of us cannot and can illuminate their minds to certain realities. Right. Uh, that, and I think, th that might exist within their communities. Right. And, but I think that's limited to the extent that I can tell, like, say, the sheriff's department. If I have so many, you know, officers coming in with bad warrants, well, I, can, I, can, I think I can have the conversation with the sheriff, you know, hey, y'all may need to, you know, do some additional training or, you know, I think they will catch on that when those warrants aren't being signed, I think the question then becomes why. And then, you know, I, I think I'm free to say because we didn't meet the standard or, you know, the probable cause wasn't there, that's something y'all should probably look at a little closer. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I think that's the way that that influence would happen. But, you know, it's hard for me to say that I would be in a position to curb things from happening because, remember, I only see them after they happen. I understand. Um, Louisiana is kind of an anomaly amongst the other states in the country with regard to African-American judges. There are more here than there are in other places in the country. Do you think that that's due to uh, the fact that uh, you have Southern University's Law Center here and Southern University's Law Center produces more black lawyers than uh, any place else in the country? What, to what do you rather than, than narrowing it okay. to what do you attribute the fact that there are more black judges 
in Louisiana than in other parts of the country? I think there are a couple of things. One, Southern University does produce a lot of the uh, black lawyers that then become judges. But I don't think people are aware of exactly how many people, white judges, actually went to Southern. Oh, I, I am. Mean, yeah. District you know, attorney, too. Freeze uh, 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 Baton Parish. Right. Yeah. Him and Former several governor of, of the state of Louisiana. Several of the other yeah. judges as well, because yeah. although people think Southern University is a black school, it's really not. I mean, it's, I think, at least 30, 35 percent white at this point. But it is, it is a predominantly black mm-hmm. law school. Right. And it is a part of the historically black system, the only uh, black collegiate system in the country. Uh, and it does produce more black lawyers right. than any place else in the country. So I was just curious. You have to remember, too, Louisiana was a part of that redistricting, and which allowed for more black judges to be on the bench. Mm-hmm. Because even take Baton Rouge. I mean, we have more black judges in Baton Rouge now than we have white. It yes. has not always been the case. No, it has the not. The population hasn't really changed that much, but we've redrawn those district lines so that there is minority representation in minority districts. Now, that has not always been the case. But that redistricting has aided in the judiciary looking more like the community. And I think that is a part of how you have, you know, more black judges, because you have more of a fair representation of the community now than you've had before. It's more of you have a mirror. 32% of this state is African American. Uh, uh, I think the last statistic I saw was 32% just under a third of uh, the state is African-American. The redistricting that you're discussing is on the judicial level. There are new plans in place if, Uh if, if the Fifth Circuit does what it's supposed to do. There are new plans in place to redraw congressional maps right. uh, so as to allow for a second uh, majority-minority district uh, in the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the reason why there is such a pushback against equity by conservatives within this state when it comes to things like redistricting? I don't know that the pushback is, you know, nobody's going to say that the pushback is against equity. I think the pushback... I will. Well, the pushback is against equity. Okay, you will say the pushback <laughs> because is it against is. equity, but I don't think people will admit that that is the basis. Yeah. But, you know, people get used to things being the way that they are, and they don't want to see them change. Although the communities are changing and, you know, society is changing, you know, people are always slow to let that change come in effect. But, you know, that's why you have that case at the Fifth Circuit now. So that you can look at the fact that, you know, it's time for us to have a, you know, uh, legislature that looks more like the people that they represent. That's on the congressional. We haven't even gotten to the legislature. Well, I mean, well, that's the U.S. Congress. But it's the same thing. Because they refuse to uh, redistribute either. But they've been aided and abetted by black Democrats who don't want to lose their majorities within their particular districts uh, to the detriment of the rest of the state. But I'm asking you not so much to comment on redistricting in those areas, Mm -hmm. but to comment on the political environment as you perceive it within this state uh, that keeps us leaning red, keeps Mm -hmm. us leaning conservative, 
as opposed to the acknowledgement of what you say uh, the realities are with regard to uh, uh, equity and fairness. Well, well, I'm also going to have to be careful about my opinion. Remember, as a judge, I won't be allowed to give my opinion. And because those are issues that are being litigated, I can't necessarily share with you what my personal belief is. But from a judicial standpoint, you know, you have to look at the law as it is written and follow those rules. So let's talk about that. Let's. If you want to get it back to, to, to being a judge. Uh, but that's why we're here. Do, do you think that as a judge sitting on the bench that you have to completely divorce yourself from personal opinions or do your personal opinions shade how you view the law? Well, no. I mean, I I'm, am... I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to how this works. Okay. Because I am going to always be the person that I am, and I have the beliefs that I have. Mm -hmm. But if I take on a position as a judge, then my job is going to be to follow the law, whether I agree with it or disagree with it. I mean, I'm not with the, in the part of the legislature. I'm so not I questioning whether or not you will agree or disagree with the law, and I'm confident in your integrity to do what the law says. I'm saying that there are perspectives mm -hmm. as to how you view anything. Right. And. And I don't think that changes when you're a judge. Okay. I that, mean, my, pers my perspective I'm is going to be my perspective. I mean, most of the things that you believe or your belief system is based on, you know, what your perspective is and what your, you know, upbringing or what your, you know, experience has been. And, I mean, that's going to be a part of it. I mean, I can't tell you that it's not. And does that also play a role in, if we're talking criminal matters, does that play a role in sentencing? Because sentencing is completely up to the discretion of the judge, or am I wrong on that? On, on most issues. Okay. I mean, but there are some crimes that sentencing is mandatory. I mean, we don't have sentencing guidelines, so to speak, like they have in federal court, mm -hmm. but you, there are some sentence, sentences that are mandatory. Most of them, there's a range, you know, like uh, second-degree murder. That's a mandatory life sentence. Okay. So there is no discretion there. First-degree murder, that's a mandatory life sentence. You have no discretion. Uh, things like, say, theft. You know, misdemeanor, you know, you can give up up to six months in uh, jail for a misdemeanor. Okay. Then it's the same. It's generally a range. And then a judge does have to consider, you know, multiple factors in determining where in that range you fall. But, yes, that is left to the discretion of a judge. Okay. So in that that is left to your discretion in, in those areas that you have described, do you believe that your experience in law plus your experience as a black woman uh, in this state plus your experience as a black mother of a successful son uh, who's about to embark on his own career right. in this state do you think that that colors not positively or negatively but influences uh, your perspective of sentencing uh, uh, where, where, where your discretion is allowed. I think that's where my perspective is going to come from. I mean, there's no other, no other choice. I mean, I can only, you know, base my decisions on what my experiences have been. And again, as long as it's within the guidelines of the law. Mm -hmm. And you have to consider 
every case individually. I mean, every case has its own set of circumstances. And I think I would have to look at those circumstances on a case-by-case basis. I mean, there's no, you know, box that you put this person in mm-hmm. or because, you know, you've done this, then you automatically going to get this. Or because you came in and did something else, you're automatically going to get that. Mm-hmm. Outside of mandatory sentencing, I think you have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. There's no other way to be fair. Not all circumstances are the same. I mean, not every, you know, person who commits theft, you know, just because you, you know, committed theft up to $500. Well, there are circumstances that surround that that a judge is going to have to take into consideration. Mm-hmm. I can't just go in, you know, just like they say, justice is not blind. Mm-hmm. I can't take every case and say, okay, because you, you know, stole $485 worth of something, you're going to get this. And that other person who stole $485 worth of something else, you know, you're going to get the same thing. I have to look at the, you know, the other circumstances in that case. And, you know, sometimes they're aggravating circumstances. Sometimes they're, you know, mitigating circumstances. You have to take those into consideration. Where you live, uh, the, the, the 23rd so, District, uh-huh. um, is considered to be, in many ways, a bedroom community to East Baton Rouge Parish. Okay. Uh, do, do, do you see that there is a bleed over... Uh, the the criticism here is that crime is increasing. Do you see that there's a bleed-over effect that has reached the 23rd District, or do you think that the the crime problems in the 23rd District are their own? They've already always been there. I mean, but I think crime is bleeding over everywhere. Now, I think you're focusing more on ascension parish, right. being like the bedroom. And I know community. you said there are multiple chair right, parishes. being the bedroom right. community of Baton Rouge because you know I'm assuming because of its proximity. Mm-hmm. You know, we're right next door. Right. But you also have Assumption Parish and St. James Parish. Right. And, you know, this past weekend you had two shootings in St. James Parish. Mm-hmm. You know, all in one weekend. So I mean, crime is everywhere. But I think the emphasis needs to be on how are we going to get a handle on preventing crime as opposed to what happens once you know once crime's there but no i do not think that that is a bleed over from baton rouge i mean you have crime coming from everywhere i mean new orleans is probably the crime capital of you know the country but you know it's right down the street so as far as the 23rd jdc you have new orleans on one side baton rouge on the other side but i don't think that you have people from Baton Rouge coming to Ascension Parish create, you know, committing crime, or that you have people from New Orleans coming to, say, St. James and creating crime. I think crime is growing and is a problem, you know, across the board. I don't think it's a bleed over from one place to the next. Okay. Um, so tell me what social activities, you, you, you've mentioned a couple of them, uh, job training programs, Mm-hmm. young people uh, are, th- are there other things that you would like to see happen within the 23rd district that you think might mitigate crime uh, I mean it's not just a young person's problem oh no 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 I mean you have a, a higher you know you have a, a big increase in juvenile crime you know now but crime is you, you have a lot of older people mm-hmm. so I mean not only do you need I think you need to introduce more programs to younger people in order to try to keep them from going on that path. But you also have older people who you need to also offer, I think, job training to. You know, you need to have, you know, places that they can go as well and resources for them as well. And so if not to, 
I mean, it's not so much uh, we're focusing on rehabilitation. We need to look at more preventative measures. Mm-hmm. But that's across the board. That's not age age specific. You are also a member of this church. Mm-hmm. You are a member of uh, several civic organizations mm-hmm. uh, within the community. Uh, do you think that? Let me stick with the church. It's, it's a church podcast. Do you think that the church is doing, in general, do you think that the church is doing uh, enough uh, within the community to to help mitigate crime and to help point people in a more positive direction? A lot, a lot of people are critical of where the church is at this juncture of our history. Uh, and that the church has taken a step back. I'm critical of the fact that the church has taken a step back in many cases. What's your opinion about that? I would probably have to agree with you. And then I base that more on when I look back at what was going on, say, in the 60s and how involved the church was then and how historically, you know, black churches in particular have been much more involved with the community than I see them being now. Mm -hmm. Now, I, you know, that would be more of a question for you why the church has well, stepped back. You're a member. To me. I, I, I'm not asking you to tell me why. I'm asking you, do you think that we have? No, I do. And, and do you think that it has uh, contributed to where we are? I think that's probably just a factor. Because you remember, uh, I guess, based historically, if black churches played a different role even in families. You know, it's different now. When you know, when I was growing up, you went to church every Sunday. You mm-hmm. know, with grandmother, or your mother. We don't have that so much now. You don't have you know parents teaching their children to go to church, mm-hmm. or taking them to church. You know, mm-hmm. that's in my house. It was required. I mean, I don't care where you were Saturday night. You knew where you were going to be Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily the case now. So I don't know that that is a church problem. I think that society in general, the role of the church has changed. And, you know, even as the church, you can only work with what you have. I mean, and it's just, it, I, and I don't, I don't know what brought about that change. But it is definitely, I do see that it's changed. Mm-hmm. And I do see that the church is not playing the same role in societal issues that they have historically. But there are other organizations, 100 Black Men, uh, mm-hmm. your Delta. Absolutely. Uh, uh, sororities and fraternities. Mm-hmm have stepped into some of those roles. And right. uh, I, I am a firm believer that on the whole, black people are either or people. We're, we're not both and people. Uh, okay. we, we, if, if we're going to contribute a considerable amount of our time and our treasure to civic organizations, that's time and treasure that uh, will not go toward the church. They might show up on Sunday morning, but their time and their treasure is going to go someplace else. Uh, it's, it's just a fact of life because right. our level of, uh, of, of income is such that we don't have the same level of discretion that other groups have. So that being the case, uh, do you think that these civic organizations uh, would be open and welcoming to the opinions of people such as yourself uh, once you assume the bench in how to best 
utilize those funds in order to bring about the uh, maximum uh, uh, desired effect within the community. But I can't speak to any other organization, but I know at Delta Sigma Theta does. I mean, we are, you know, are very heavily involved in the community, and I'm sure would welcome partnerships, you know, wherever we can find them to, you know, have those use, those resources, you know, used throughout our community. Mm -hmm. So, but and I think uh, every other civic organization does. I think the difference now is you have more organizations and you have, you know, more everybody's objective is a little bit different. As opposed, again, historically, that wasn't the case. We were all seeking, you know, one goal then. Now, you, you know, you have so many issues that these organizations are all, you know, wanting to face. It's, it's, you don't have as much unity as you had before. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're, you know, on different sides of the fence, I don't think. It's just that, you know, you're spread much further now than you, than you have been in mm -hmm. the past. Mm -hmm. But, no, I think, I mean, I think as far as we're concerned, I am now, you know, a member of Ascension Alumni Chapter. You know, we have numerous community service activities and are very heavily involved in the community. And you're smiling. I am because I, 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 I think that you all are doing wonderful jobs. Uh, but I think that uh, part of the dilemma that exists is we have several different groups that are trying to do the same thing right. instead of trying to coordinate Come together our efforts. Right. At this time of year, for ju just to use a simple example, back to school, at, right. at this time of year, I am so sick of back-to-school uh, uh, right. projects uh, where we're handing out loose-leaf paper and Pencils. tablets and mm -hmm. everywhere you turn, there's a back-to-school this and a back-to-school Right. And I think that I'm sure that those things are needed, but do we need 50 of them? <laughs> as opposed to, to a more coordinated effort in how we see. Everybody wants to help, right. but not every idea of helping uh, uh, means that we have to uh, duplicate the same thing exactly. 45 different times. I think times. we need to broaden our perspective. I mean, you, like you said, we have back-to-school drives every day, every weekend. I don't think there should be a child in America that doesn't have a backpack, a pencil, and some glue. That's right. Because we, you know, in loose leaf paper. But I think everybody wants to help. And if you... And that's commendable, that but, everybody wants to help. Right. And, but the good thing, though, is, like, say in Ascension Parish, there are going to be a couple of back-to-school drives. Mm -hmm. You know, one at the WAG Center, and then the other one's going to be at Lafayette Park in Gonzales. Mm -hmm. Well, that is multiple groups that are coming together to do that one back-to-school drive. But again, like you said, you got 10 other ones going on. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what the answer is to get all of them to have, you know, just one big one. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, you know, what that would take or what you know what who, who's going to do that who says okay guys look we're not going to have 10 back to school drives everybody bring their resources to one place mm -hmm. i don't know how that would happen at this point because everybody has kind of taken off on that that's you know that's your signature you know program right now what's the employment level like in the 23rd district uh, is is it high unemployment uh, i'm i'm trying to get to causes of crime uh, is is there a high level of unemployment? Is it comparative to the rest of the state? Is it low? I think it's about the same as the rest of the state. I mean, I, I don't think uh, Ascension Parish has an unemployment issue any more than anywhere else does, or Assumption or St. James. I mean, and, you know, now one of the things that I've always been just, you know, 
can't understand since the pandemic, it seems like nobody wants to go to work. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have places closing down. So I don't know that there is a shortage of jobs because everywhere you go, everywhere you look, there are, you know, help wanted signs, you know, all kind of incentives to get people to come to work that you didn't have pre pre pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that there's a shortage of jobs. And I don't know, you know, but I've gone to stores, you know, they close early because they can't get people to come to work. Now, I don't know what has caused that because you don't have those government incentives anymore. You, you know, you don't have the PPP loans and the, right. you know, all of those incentives that you had that were connected to the pandemic. So I don't know what the source of that is, you know, what's causing that now. But the the hourly wages have not no. gone up uh, significantly Louisiana to, should to, to be ashamed. Say, say more about that. Oh, yes. Yeah. $7.25 an hour, you can't live on that. I mean, those are not livable wages. And I am not real sure why it's taken us so long to change that. But that's something that probably needs to be addressed. Maybe it's because you have so many conservatives in the state legislature. And I don't think there's a problem with being a conservative. I think that you know, being a, I don't think that that is the answer to that. But Louisiana definitely. Then needs what to do you think contributes to it? Since the legislature, since the governor has said more than once mm -hmm. that uh, minimum wage should be raised, I believe his number is fifteen dollars an hour, which still is poor. Uh, but okay. but but if if let's go with his number. His number is roughly twice what it currently is, and he can't get that passed in a conservative-dominated legislature, then who should I look to, if, if you're saying it's not necessarily a conservative problem, who should I look to for See, that? See, I don't know. I think from my, from my limited experience of things that go on at the legislature, it's you'll have a bill and then they tack on so many other things, and that's why I've seen a couple of th times where things don't get passed, not because people don't support what that initial item is, but they've tacked on so many other things that you can't support, then the whole thing fails. So I don't, I don't, you know, I don't visit the legislature very often, so I don't know, you know, exactly what the weather snag is in the road. But I think we can all agree, conservative or otherwise, that $7.25 is not a livable wage. Do judges have a, uh, I don't know what to call it, a, a, do they meet on a regular basis to discuss informally uh, issues that affect uh, their communities or, in your case, uh, judicial districts? Is there such a thing as, as ministers come together from time to time mm. and, and, and they discuss these matters? Is it the same with judges? Are, are these kinds of discussions being held at that level? You mean uh, their judicial conferences, conferences all the time? Oh, no, yeah, they are. But 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 I'm talking about specific to to what's going on within your judicial area. You're going to be in the 23rd judicial district. Do judges come together and talk about what's going on within that district? Not yes. Not a philosophical discussion about meetings. law, but no, you have judges meetings. Right. I mean, so every when, court has judges meetings. When you have these meetings, uh -huh. do things like pay. And, and hourly wages and unemployment, do those things come up? Chemical plants, because a lot of uh, the employment in the 23rd Judicial District has to do with chemical plants, and their proximity to schools are always in the news. Are these things discussed in those 
conferences? Now, I, I don't know. I know that that would not likely be on an agenda, on a judge's agenda. G generally, when there are judges' meetings, on the agenda is, you know, things that affect the court or, you know, new laws that have been passed. I don't think that there is a formal discussion of, you know, minimum wage. I, but again, I don't know, because I've never participated in a judge's meeting at this juncture. So when you become a judge, you know. would, 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 would you introduce such a discussion? Oh, if we're, if we're, yeah. I mean, I, I don't see why, well, why we couldn't talk about that. But again, I think judges meeting— From my perspective, and I know—my sister tells me all the time I don't know anything. But, but uh, uh, from my perspective, those things are mitigating factors to crime and things that take place within communities. If I'm Wait, working a minimum 40 minimum wage is a factor to crime? Yes. How? Because I'm working 40 hours a week. Well, the and, likelihood and, that if you're committing a crime, you're not working at all. If I'm working You're at home. I, I really think I'm talking to my sister now. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, if, if 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 I'm working 40 hours mm. a week and I'm working, let's round it up, to, to $8 an hour. Uh, that's $320 a week, which is hardly enough money to live on. I, you don't think that that's a mitigating factor to crime? Yeah, but you're not going to be the one that's committing those crimes. It's not those. It's generally not people that are going to work that are committing these crimes. It's people who don't have jobs. I mean, you don't see. You don't think that that's a mitigating factor to crime? The fact that in my household, I'm there's just 300. Let's double it. Let's say that it's 640 dollars a week coming into. House. Let's, let's say that me and my spouse are both making $8 an hour. So the teenager in the house okay. uh, is looking at what we're bringing in and that we can't afford to buy the latest fashion or the latest this, or we can't afford to send them to the salon to get their nails, male or female, uh, because crimes can go both ways. You don't think that that's a contributing factor to crime at all? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the people who are making those wages are probably not not likely to be the but ones committing crimes. But that's not my question. But wait, my question is, is it a mitigating factor? Okay, but let, me, let me take it a step further. That teenager, the teenager that you talked about being in the home, it's right. not likely that they know really how much their parents make. Oh, yeah, but, they know. Well, but wait. Yeah, but, they know. But again, that teenager. Vicky, that, they know. That teenager. Vicky, don't 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 move past that point. They know. Okay. But let me take it to the next step. That knowledge of how much their parents are making is probably not what is leading them to crime. It's not. Oh, my parents aren't making enough money, so let me go out here and commit crime. No, what they're looking it's, at is. I the don't fact. have. No, it's social media. It's television, and you see the fast dollar being made in those areas. So then that, I think, is going to encourage that person to go out and think, oh, let me go make the fast dollar more than they're going to look at, oh, my mom's only making $8 an hour. No, they're the, I mean, you have so many things, social media-wise, it's, it's the devil, that makes crime look attractive from multiple areas. I mean, you look at TV. You know, people, but you don't think that lack has anything to do with it? No, I don't think. No, I'm not saying that lack has absolutely nothing to do with it. Because of course, if we had more money, most of us will spend that on our kids, and you know, the kids then will. But kids aren't ever going to have enough. I mean, and again, you have crime looking so attractive. Tr crime looks attractive until you're in trouble. I mean, you, it's it's just you know, sensationalized. 
You have to agree with that. I mean, look at television. No, I don't have to but agree with that. You do. Crime, and I don't. Look at TV. Crime looks like, oh, this is, it looks fun. It looks like nobody ever gets in trouble for it. So you have those things, and I think those things weigh in as well, more so than I'm sitting at home and I see my parents going to work every day, and I know that I don't necessarily I disagree with you that they know how much their parents make, but I know how much, you know, my parents say that they have to spend on me. I mean, you I, I don't think that that by itself is what's driving crime. I because, didn't say that that by itself is driving crime. And I, I don't crime. think that that's I asked, the— do you think that it is a mitigating factor? I think it's very low on the totem pole because the majority of the people in these, you know, households, their parents either are not working, they certainly aren't working, so we're not committing crime because we don't think $7.25 is enough. We, I don't think that's the reason. No, I don't. Can't okay. agree with you on that one. Okay. Um, wow. <laughs> you have to agree to disagree on that one. As... You have practiced law for 30-plus years. Mm -hmm. What do you think has changed the most in the practice of law from the time you started to the time that you are currently serving? Lawyers. Lawyers have changed, and just the professionalism. It is so different now than when I started practicing law. The professionalism, it just seems to have—we we get farther and farther away from it. Just go to court and look at a courthouse. There was a time when you can go to court and you would know who the lawyer was and probably who the client was. You know, lawyers looked like lawyers when I started practicing law. Okay. Uh, that is so much not the case. I mean, I see females attorneys in court with flip-flops on. That did not happen 30 years ago. Do judges allow that in the courtroom? I, some of them more so than others. And now, if you ask about me on the bench, that is one thing that's going to be required. There is a judge in Baton Rouge. He is a stickler prof for professionalism, okay. and I couldn't agree with him more. I mean, I think that this is a profession that we should be proud of, mm -hmm. and we should look like we're proud of it. You should, you know, as the people say, look like a lawyer. Okay. But beyond appearance, mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that's important, uh, but, but, but beyond appearance, what else— do you think has changed over the 30 years that you've been practicing The work law? ethic is different. It's just different now. I mean, and I probably will be criticized greatly to say that there are a lot of lazy lawyers. I mean, that wasn't the case 30 years ago. 30 years ago, we worked, and there weren't as many of us. I mean, there are so many lawyers now. I mean, when I got out of law school 30 years ago, we did not nearly have people graduating from law school at the rate that they are now and being licensed at the rate that they are now. So you have just the indulgence of just lawyers everywhere. Do you think it's reached a saturation point? Louisiana in particular, we have four law schools within, what, a 150-mile radius. But it's four law schools for the entire state. But they're there, within a 150-mile radius. There's not a law school north of Baton Rouge, mm -mm. Which, which means that there is to a tremendous Rouge, to southern migration mm -hmm from places like Shreveport and Monroe right. and Alexandria and things of that sort. And courts there probably look different than they look here. I mean, we're, you know, you're in the area where we have the two law schools here, right. 100 miles from here, you have two more. Right. So in this area in particular, you do have a saturation of attorneys. 
And I think that lends itself a lot to, you know, I don't know that you don't have that many jobs to, for that many lawyers. So a lot of lawyers now, you know, have their private practices and, you know, kind of just come out of the gate and hang the shingle. I mean, we didn't have as much of that back then. And I don't know if, you know, we just had so many in 31 years that, you know, that's a long time. And then you, we're producing lawyers just every every year even and it just for me it seems like the requirements to become a lawyer or the standards are different i mean we they from what i understand that the test is no longer what it used to be i mean they're taking the bar exam online now and we're taking I mean, was that due to covid or oh, I don't did know. that happen before COVID? that is unheard of that definitely was not going on before covid and i think there should be a rite of passage everybody should be in that pressure cooker like me and your sister were it gives you a different appreciation for the practice of law. Okay. Uh, talk to me about your son. You, okay. you, you, you're, you're a single mother, yep. uh, and you have raised what I think is an outstanding young man. Uh, so t talk to me about very easy to talk uh, about the son. challenges of being a single mother. Well, I had it a lot easier. Remember, I have the great, wonderful son. As everybody knows, I love my child to death. Yes. I mean, he is definitely the, he is the joy of my life. And you, Donovan is going to law school in the fall, which I'm very happy about. Uh, but Donovan grew up in court. So, I mean, I had Donovan at trials when sitting next to me in a stroller, when he, you know, I come get, Donovan went to shallow daycare. Mm -hmm. I would come here, pick him up, we'd go back to court because I wasn't finished with the case. But yeah, no, Donovan has done very well. I mean, I, I have to admit that, you know, there were times in his life when I thought things may have gone differently or would have changed. Mm -hmm. I remember I thought when, you know, he was a good kid, a good student from elementary school, and I thought things would change, you know, because he's a boy. I thought that would change when he went to middle school. It didn't. He did very well in middle school. Then I thought, okay, well, he's going to high school now. You know, boys kind of start falling off. But he didn't. Went to high school, graduated with honors. Went to college, graduated with honors. Mm -hmm. Now, he had his gap year that, for the life of me, I don't understand this new young age. You know, we just take a year off from life and just, you know, live your best life. Mm -hmm. But like many other parents, I fell into that and, you know, allowed that as well. Mm -hmm. But then now he seems to be back on track. He's going to law school and he's ready to go. What was your greatest challenge uh, as a single mother? Um, time. And, you know, I didn't realize how much the... My, the time factored in because when Donovan, I think, was in college was the first time I actually heard him say how much, you know, he missed me being at home because I worked late. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would get home at 6, you know, 6 o'clock, 630. So he was the latchkey kid. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know, like, the factor, you know, how that factored and weighed on him until later. Mm -hmm. But, of course, he understood that I was at work. I wasn't the parent who was out partying and didn't come home. You know, I worked late. And mm -hmm. I just I didn't realize that, you know, when he was growing up. Uh, being a single parent, didn't realize how much the absence of his father factored in his life mm -hmm. until he until he was in college. Mm -hmm. You know, when he you know because I tried to make up for everything that he didn't have to make sure that you know I made sure that whatever it was that was you know he didn't miss anything. I mean that whatever I had to do, he wasn't going to miss anything. Mm -hmm. Didn't do without anything, and he wasn't going to miss out on anything. Mm -hmm. But knowing I know now that that absence did affect him. So I strongly encourage fathers to be fathers to your children mm -hmm. because children, it affects them. You know, it does. I mean, so and one of the things that I do now, I practice primarily family law. 
you know, families are important to me, kids are important to me. And I try to stress to my clients and to others, be a part of your children's lives. Mm -hmm. It matters. I mean, children don't want your money. They want your love and they want your time. I mean, and your time more than anything else. So mm -hmm. be a present parent. It will affect your children. And I think a lot of the problems that we see now, too, you have so many, you know, single-parent households, moms doing their best, doing everything they can. But one thing that a mother cannot be is a father. Um, mom can't be a dad. I like hearing that part. That, um, I, mean, you can't, I mean, you can't. As hard as I tried to be both. <laughs> I mean, you can't. I mean, there's some things that you just can't do, and no matter how hard you work, because I don't think anybody strived at being a, be a better parent than I did. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to hear my child say when he's, you know, 19, 20 years old, how much it affected him not having his father around. Mm -hmm. But that was, you know, that's the one thing that I couldn't give him. So mm -hmm. fathers need to understand that that is important. Mm -hmm. You know, women can't be fathers. I mean, we just can't do that. My next question, Rose. Are, but are, let's are sum from. that up to say Donovan is the best child ever. <laughs> Hands down. I will not argue with you about that point. There you go. I, I think he's an outstanding young man. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I'm very of, proud. Of his. Uh, but my next question rolls from what, what you were just talking about. To most people, you are a double minority. I don't know how you view yourself, but you're a black female mm -hmm. uh, individual which makes you, in the, in the eyes of much of society, a double right. minority. You're also an entrepreneur. Uh, you, uh -huh. you didn't join a firm. You hung your own shingle, and you fended for yourself. You slay what you eat. Talk to me about the challenges of being a black female entrepreneur in this community. But a little bit different. I do have to correct that. Okay. I didn't just hang my shingle. I always had a job. I worked for the uh, city parish for the first 25 years, okay. almost 25 years. So it was a little different than people who just hang their shingle. I had a full-time job and, you know, had a paycheck coming in. Okay. So I wasn't just a, you know, just an entrepreneur at that okay. point. So that made it, I guess, a little bit easier for me because I knew I, I had to work hard on that job. Mm -hmm. But then I also developed my private practice as well, which, I mean, it, we I've done well. I mean, I've been very blessed is what I can say. I've yeah, I know that. But yeah. I'm certain that there are challenges that are associated with that. So there are challenges just being a, one, being a woman in mm -hmm. a man's world, so Talk to speak. Talk about that. Expand on that. Elaborate uh, on that. Uh, I guess, you know, coming, coming when I first started, I mean, you see, I felt like I, because I was a woman, more challenged by men. And that's the way it was. So I had to be good at what I did. It also, it makes you feel like you have to be twice as good as everybody else. I mean, my work ethic has always been, you know, study hard because I do not like to lose. Mm -hmm. Never have, probably never will. I play tennis with yeah. you. I know you don't like to don't lose. Don't like to lose at <laughs> yes. all. So, but that, I think a lot of it too, as far as the profession is concerned, I had to work harder. I have to go to court prepared. Mm -hmm. You know, because one, you need to set yourself apart from everybody else and you have to gain the respect of your colleagues. And the only way to gain that respect is to be good at what you do. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think if I were not a double minority, I wouldn't necessarily have to gain that respect. I think some part of that comes with being a man. I think part of it comes with being a white man. I mean, some of that respect is already there. You don't have to earn it. But as a double minority, yeah, I had to earn the respect of my colleagues. 
do you feel like you were denied anything because you are a black female? Me? No, yes. I'm not going to be denied I mean, within, any- within law. I am not going to be denied anything ever. So, no. I don't think I was denied anything. Okay. Now, did I have to work for it? Yes. Yeah. Now, were things just handed to me? No, you have to work for it. Mm-hmm. Which I think that makes you a better lawyer. You should you should put the work in. It's the only way you learn. You have to be willing to do, to do the work. As you project into the future uh, as a sitting judge, uh, do you have a priority list of things that you would like to accomplish. How, w- w- once you're elected, how long is the term of office? Well, I am running for to fill an unexpired term. How long is so that? So this lasts to 2026. Okay, and then, and then I'll have to run again in 2026. To, right. And that would be for a four-year term? For a six-year term. For a six-year term. Mm-hmm. So between now and 2026, what is it that you would like to look back on and say, I accomplished this, I, we, we were able to change that. Are there things that you're looking at within the judiciary of the 23rd district mm-hmm. that you would like to have an impact on? Yes, families, that's still important to me. Like right now, you know, I primarily practice family law on the bench. I wanna make sure that my impact is positive on families and positive for children. I mean, those are the things that are the most important, important to me. And, you know, just to say that my legacy is to have been on the bench and been fair and been equitable to everybody. I want you to look at that camera, and I want you to tell uh, the prospective uh, voter why they should vote for Veronica Vicki Jones. That's easy. Okay. One, I have a unique perspective that I will bring to the bench. As we have discussed here, I have worked for 31 years as a practicing attorney, a full-time practicing attorney. Along with that comes experience. I have practiced at probably every level of court. That's from city courts to district courts to federal courts. And I've had the unique experience of arguing multiple times before our state Supreme Court. That experience is the experience that I will bring to the bench along with the fact that I uh, have been in the courtroom, um, you know, I've seen what it's like to practice. So I bring that perspective with me as well. I also have a love for our community. I'm bringing that to the bench with me. So for those reasons, I ask that on October the 14th, that's election day, that you cast your vote for Vicki Jones. Anything else you wanna say? Done? Really enjoyed this. It's been it's very Veronica good. Vicky Jones. It is good to sit down and talk with you again. Yay. It's been a minute. I know it's been a while. I hope to see you again real soon. You will. Thank you for viewing. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next time. Mm, thank you for having me. <laughs>